Welcome to Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples, together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers, the books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectual scientists, and others. And we'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about these important works. Today we're going to cover The Things They Carried, a book about the about war set in the Vietnam War. Chase Jarvis is the one who recommended the book in Tools of Titans. Jarvis is the CEO of CreativeLive.com and one of the most successful commercial photographers in the world. You can follow him on Instagram at Chase Jarvis, C-H-A-S-E-J-A-R-V-I-S. The author of The Things They Carried is Tim O'Brien. He's a Minnesota native, and Minnesota comes up in the, in the book a few times. He, he also served in the Vietnam War. He joined a division that contained a unit involved in the My Lai Massacre, which was a, a horrific incident with uh, U.S. soldiers uh, just pretty much taking out an entire village. And he joined after that massacre happened. After the war, he went to Harvard. So we're going to join. We'll jump right to the section of our favorite quotes. And I've got a few favorites in this there. Uh, the, the first one is a re- relatively long one, but I'll, uh, I'll just start it off here. All of us, I suppose, like to believe that in a moral emergency, we would behave like the heroes of our youth, bravely and forthrightly, without thought of personal loss or discredit. If the stakes ever became high enough, if the evil were ever evil enough, if the good were good enough, I would simply tap a secret reservoir of courage that had been accumulating inside over the years. Courage, I seem to think, comes to us in finite quantities, like an inheritance. And by being frugal and stashing it away and letting it earn interest, we steadily increase our moral capital in preparation for that day when the account must be drawn down. It was a comforting theory. It dispensed with all those bothersome little acts of daily courage. It offered hope and grace to the repetitive coward. It justified the past while amortizing the future. And that, that was just an amazing quote, uh, hitting on a lot of topics we've discussed in some of the other books, but uh, this, this idea that um, you just kind of, if you kind of live your life hoping that in the moment where you need courage, it's just going to suddenly arrive without doing any preparation beforehand. Uh, he, he says it's a comforting theory, uh, but, it, but it doesn't work. And we actually see a, a, an example of that in, the, in this book. Uh, where he he relates not saving to someone dur- someone during a war uh, to an to an action he re- he didn't take when he was when he was a kid. Uh, we'll get I've, I've got that listed as something I want to get into later. But um, that was a, I, I just thought he nailed that with uh, with courage on on that quote there. Did uh, did that one stick out to you as well, Jason? Yeah, it was one? a good one. I mean, I think um, it gets in large measure to one of the main th- one of the main themes of the book which is that war is fundamentally human uh and mm-hmm. that these are flawed human beings who fight wars and that you know glorifying it and so glorifying the deeds of those heroes at war to some degree diminishes their humanness and and dealing with the reality of what it is to be human forces uh, or and dealing with the reality of war forces us to deal with the reality of what it is to be human. So I, I think that that quote gets to a lot of what 
his writing here is is trying to get at as well. Yeah, uh, I I liked one other quote in the book, and it, this quote was about blame. And again, it's a long one. I'm just going to read the paragraph. When a man died, there had to be blame. Jimmy Cross understood this. You could blame the war. You could blame the idiots who made the war. You could blame Kiowa for going to it. You could blame the rain. You could blame the river. You could blame the field, the mud, the climate. You could blame the enemy. You could blame the mortar rounds. You could blame people who are too lazy to read a newspaper, newspaper, who were bored by the daily body counts, who switched channels at the mention of politics. You could blame the whole nations. You could blame God. You could blame the, the munitions makers or Karl Marx or a trick of fate or an old man in Omaha who forgot to vote. In the field, however, though, the, the, the causes were immediate. A moment of carelessness or bad judgment or plain stupidity carried consequences that lasted forever. I, that that was a, a tough one. I mean, um, here you got how, who, who can we blame for the war? Can we blame people who don't read the newspaper or the leaders? Um, we can talk about all this blame, but when you're when you're in the actual field, one moment of carelessness or bad judgment or plain stupidity carried consequences that lasted forever. And uh, I, I, I think it's also kind of captured the, the book. He, he, he just had a great way of, of talking about deep, deep issues with war and, and difficult topics, but in a way that, uh, that, that made you think about it differently. And I we will get into that with, with even the first chapter and how he talks about war. But um I, uh, I thought that was a, a neat, neat passage there about who, who do you blame in a war, and especially when you're the soldier and it's uh, your decisions carry carry huge consequences. Yeah, yeah, and again, that that is a theme throughout this book is just how even small things, uh, even. Uh, even, you know, the momentary, a moment, a single momentary lapse can be something that changes the course of, of history in terms of someone's life, in terms of all these other things and how war magnifies the, uh, the consequences of every decision because everything is, is blown up, no pun intended, but everything is, is made so, so much larger and, and the, the amount of time that you have to make these decisions is shrunk, uh, so much that, that, uh, yeah, I mean, it, war ends up being a window into into humanity in in how he writes all this stuff, and 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 I think again, that's that's the window. That's that's how his book should be understood. Uh, getting into my quotes, um, a <laughs> little bit a uh, little bit different. Uh, I I got I got two here. Uh, one is uh, about his uh, this character Rat Kylie, and he's exp- explaining uh, Rat's uh, uh, penchant for uh exaggeration and he said you know he had a ra- uh, an ex- a, a, a reputation for exaggeration and overstatement so they said uh for most of us it was normal procedure to discount 60 or 70 percent of anything he had to say if rat told you for example that he'd slept with four girls one night you could figure it was about a girl and a half <laughs> which you know that kind of works for me i mean that that uh that that math uh that math is entertaining at any rate. Um, and the other one really in, in a lot of respects, again, hits the, um, uh, the, 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 one of the prime themes of the book once again, and it's just two words, death sucks. Yeah. 
And I mean, it's it's hard to to get more profundity in many respects than that. I mean, he that's toward the end of the book, and you know, one of his characters just comes to this realization: death sucks. And again, this book really tries to force the reader to come to grapple with the reality of human mortality, with the fact that people die, like not like characters in a movie die, but like people actually like real people, like they die people. We all die. And you can kind of hear him at different points, like trying to get people to, to realize that like, no, no, really, no people die. Like death. It, it's a thing. It's really bad. It exists. And we have to deal with that. And over and over and over again, you keep coming back to that concept and, and that concept in the, particularly in the context of war. But so much of the book is trying to grapple with that fact. Death sucks, man. And, and in the context of both losing friends and taking life yourself in the, in the, in the case of, of war. Yeah. And, killing and enemies. Yeah. yeah. Which again, you know, well, how is he my enemy? He's just like me and he's just out, out trying to do his job. Neither one of us has anything against each other, mm-hmm. but so, somehow now he's dead and I'm not. And now what do I, how do I deal with that? Cause he was it's just me right there. And now he's dead. Yeah, it's it's an interesting book in that regard and it's a it's a sobering read in a lot of in a lot of ways because of that constant drumbeat of bringing us back to something that as as he points out in a few cases we really try so hard to ignore that reality. We try so mm. hard not to think about death. And mm. we like we even try to sanitize what war is like and we make it heroic. Right. Yeah. As in your your first quote, like we believe that we'll behave like heroes, but the reality is, like, it's just people killing one another, like people dying. And how is that heroic, right? And 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 he's he's getting to the bottom of that. And the thing is, he doesn't answer in a comforting way because in 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 how he answers, there are times where it can be heroic, and it is heroic, but it's still killing somebody. And now what? Like, what does that tell us? Like, how do we handle that? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a really interesting book in that respect. So, and and I, I think that two-word quote toward the end of the book, again, highlights that. So I think we can trans- transition now, talk a little bit more, I suppose, about the uh, the book itself, more in the big picture uh, and, you know, some of the details there. Uh, so uh, I know you had a couple that you wanted to, wanted to hit right away. So, uh, so let's hit it. Yeah, and, and for any any of the listeners that haven't read the book, it's it's a really unique setup. Um, I have not read a book like this before. I, I'm sure there's many out there, but um, it's it's a collection of stories, of of war stories. But uh, you go back into the person's life, and then you see the person's life after the war, and then during the war. Um, but it's it's what's called metafiction or do you, do you know how to pronounce the other word there? Yeah. You want metafiction or? In the second part there. Oh, uh, verisimilitude. Okay. So the whole time you're kind of wondering, is this fiction or nonfiction? And for me, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't come across a book like this, but it's a collection of short stories that are tied together in this sort of a metafiction uh, aspect where Tim O'Brien, the author, his name is mentioned and 
he's talking about it as if this is exactly what happened, but he's writing in a way where it's not, it's not like a, a, an exact replication of what happened in the war or in his life, but it's, it's this blurred line between fiction and nonfiction and, and the way he did it. I, I just found it very, very intriguing. And, uh, and, it, and it helped to bring a lot of the points home in the, in the book. Yeah. I mean, I actually wasn't sure initially when I was reading it, it was one of those things that he kept, you know, and initially he does present it. It's almost like it is reality. And then, and then you do find out like later, no, no, he's, he's making most of this up, mm -hmm. but then that's the key, right? It's most of it. And then you have to figure like, if you're really trying to do this and trying to, ana to, to analyze, you go, well, what part is he making up versus not? Mm -hmm. And then you say, oh, well, you can't really get to that. And that's part of the point. Yeah. And he has this discussion, which we'll talk about a little bit later, about the difference between truth, you know, a, a true story and, uh, you know, something that, that actually happened. So, you know, happening truth uh, and story truth. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll address that in a little bit. But he wants to get to this where he's, he's getting to the reality of how things work. He's getting to the... Uh, he's getting to the... Uh, to the essence of things by writing stories that are sort of true to life based on a true story. It it's something that is based on something that happened either to him or to somebody else or whatever. And then he gets imaginative with it to get across the feel more than the details, right? He's not trying to write history. He's not trying to write a, true story in the sense of like what happened but he's trying to write what happened so in the way in a, he's trying to to help people understand what happened and and get the you know, feel made, of it well it made me think of when you're watching a movie and the very first uh credit thing to come up in the movie is based upon a true story yeah and it's like okay there so you know there's going to be aspects of the actual story but it's being told in a way that it per, perhaps it's enhancing the truth of the story or it's just doing a Hollywood thing. But he, he gets into that of, of the story truth versus the happening truth and what could be truer in, in different circumstances. And even just a, for a war story, telling it just straight exactly what happened might not be as true as, as a different way of telling the story. Well, and, true, and true meaning what, right? That's what he's trying to get at is like, mm -hmm. what does true mean here? Mm -hmm. Like when I say a story is true, like what exactly does that mean? Right. And, and what is really interesting about that is most people might answer with the question of, or might answer that question with the, with, with the response. Uh, well, a true story Basically, a true story is when you tell something and, you know, what you say happened, happened. So the details are right. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, I can take a story and reshape it and get all the details right and completely change how you should understand the story to the point where I've distorted what actually happened. Right. You can you can talk about like... um Okay, uh, you can just you can describe a a car accident, and you can say, "Well, this car 
made contact. So the front car made or the back car made contact with the front car. And the trunk of the front car was crumpled. Causing uh, causing significant damage to the front car. Right. All of those are correct details. It's exactly what happened. And I said it that way in such a way as to, to suggest that the front car was rear-ended. But what if the actual thing that happened is that the front car backed into the, ba- into the car that was behind it? Mm-hmm. Those two cars still made contact in that way. The trunk was still compacted. But if I just said the front car, rear, or the front car backed into the, into the back car, that totally changes things. And it's a truer story in the sense of getting at not only the details, but the why and the, and, and the how of things than, than piling on all sorts of extraneous details that, that, are, that, that may or may not be relevant to actually understanding what happened in, in, in a more narrative sense. And, you know, this is something that I, I don't think people often appreciate is the way that this happens in news. This happens all the time in terms of anytime you tell a story, you have to choose which details to tell, how to tell it. And all of that is you shaping what the story actually says. Because the reality is like based on a true story, you know, a movie based on the true story. Well, a movie is limited by what, how, how long is, you know, a, a typical movie, what two like a longer movie now would be two and a half hours, which I still think we should move back to like having an, having a, an intermission for some of those, you know, for some of us uh, guys who are maybe not in our twenties anymore. And, you know, it'd be nice to have that intermission uh, uh, in the middle of some of these longer, you know, tentpole movies that are pushing three hours now. And, you know, let's get back to the days of Ben, her and, uh, and, um, you know, these, these types of things where you might as well just put an intermission in there so everybody can at least, you know, breathe for a second and all the other things that might happen in an intermission for five minutes. But anyway, let's say you go maximum three hours and you're talking about something that happened over, say, three years. Well, what you can't do is show a play-by-play, word-by-word replay of everything that happened over those three years. You have to be very selective with what details you, you choose to show. And what if there are other things that, you know, you might run out of time with, uh, to show? So you, what you do is you say, well, we're going to invent this character that didn't exist, who's going to be kind of a pastiche of these eight characters that had these various roles so that the audience can kind of follow along with what was actually happening. But they don't need to know all the details of these eight different lives that are important here. What they need to know is that this was driven by this. And we, we're going to invent this so that we can, we're going to invent this character so that we can have all those actions sewed up in one person. And that'll cut, that'll cut, you know, another hour off of screen time. And then we're going to eliminate these couple events because they weren't really that important. And so you eventually get down to where you can pare it all the way down to the three hours. And this is what you see anytime a book is made into a movie, but the book itself is a shortened version of what happened in reality. Mm-hmm. And it's well, and choosing those the, details. Uh, it's the two uh, quotes you had uh, later on here where he's where the, the author is talking about a person that he killed. And he tells it in the story version and then he st- tells it in the happening truth. And I thought that was a good uh, distinction of how how he was talking about that. Yeah, he makes that um, distinction here. I'll, I'll go ahead and read it from from our notes. 
he says, you know, uh, he says, first of all, he says, in, in talking about happening truth, uh, I'm going to read through several different quotes from different places in the book. He says, a thing may happen and be a total lie. Another thing may not happen and be truer than the truth, which I think the way he puts that is, I, I, I think, a little questionable. I, I wouldn't say it that way myself, but I think what he's getting at is that you can tell a story that is a true story in, the, in that it describes accurately the way things happened or happen. And then something else may actually happen that isn't generally the way things work. And, it, and, and if we just focus on that one, one point, we're actually not getting the truth of how, how the world works or whatever. So I think that's where he's going with that. But anyway, he says then, by telling stories, you objectify your own, your own experience, you separate it from yourself, you pin down certain truths. So that when you're telling stories, you pin down certain truths, you make up others. You start sometimes with an incident that truly happened, like the night in the blank field, and uh, the caca field, and you carry it forward by inventing incidents that did not, in fact, occur, but nevertheless help to clarify and explain. So that gets back to what I was just, just talking about there. And he says his objective in writing the way he writes is, I want you to feel what I felt when he's at war. I want you to know why story truth is truer sometimes than happening truth, just relating the facts. Yeah. And then he explains, here is the happening truth. I was once a, a soldier. There were many bodies, real bodies with real faces, but I was young then and I was afraid to look. And now, 20 years later, I'm left with faith faceless responsibility and faceless grief. Here is the story truth. He was a slim, dead, almost dainty young man of about 20. He lay in the center of a red clay trail near the village of Mai Ke. His jaw was in his throat. His one eye was shut. The other was a star-shaped hole. I killed him. And the emotional gravitas of the second one, I mean, immediately jumps out at you. Yeah. And he's saying, no, did all those details happen? Is this, you know, a story of exactly how I killed this person? No, but I killed a lot of people just like this representative example that I'm making up in this moment, and I want you to feel what that feels like. And he's really getting at something important in how he does that. And frankly, actually, again, in, in my field, this is something that, that we talk about a lot. I mean, you, people uh, in, in, a lot of, uh, in a lot of religious contexts are, they they would prefer not to think of their religious texts as working this way but you know the bible does this you have you have you have lots of examples in which uh the bible is clearly shaping the happening truth to get at the story truth that the that the narrator wants to relay and the question is of course for the reader for the religious person well, how do we deal with that? Like, is it really true then? Like, is it like, is this false? Well, it, again, you have to understand what truth is to be able to answer that question at all. And really truth ha in the way that these stories are being, or what they're trying to convey. The question is, is what they are trying to convey true more than anything else? The happening truth is ancillary because mm -hmm. events can be, you know, any event can be, can be relevant or irrelevant depending on the story. And then the question is, is the story true? 
is it actually adequately representing, is it accurately representing the way that life works? Is it representing the way that things were in, in the time that it's actually telling of? It's a different question. Yeah. Well, in, in, in those two, two examples you just read, I mean, where the one is kind of the facts, like here's, here's the facts that happened. Um, I, I, I tune that when you're saying that I kind of tune it out. So, oh, okay, this is just another example of what happens in war. But that second one, where, huh. where I mean, that, like, I had chills when you finish reading that because it's like, oh, my gosh. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine the guilt of, of, of that, of, of, and, and having that 20 years later, having that vision of the person you killed in your head and wondering every day, like, who was this guy? What did he do? Did he, had he just left his family to, to go to war? You know, all the, all these different questions. And I think that really captures it uh, so well in that second one compared to the, to the first one, but maybe a lot of, of war books are going to be written more of, here's what happened. Here's the battle that took place. Here's how many died. Uh, here's who died on each side. Here's how many wounded. Uh, and this the was, the, these were the, battle. these were the strategies that were in play and, here were the mistakes by the people on the one side and why they lost the war. And then here were the, here were the things that were done on the other side that led to the success. And, oh, look at the great bravery, you know, Pickett's charge and how they all, you know, they, they fought to the death in this way. Mm -hmm. And what O'Brien's getting at is, as often as not, those stories are not actually true mm -hmm. in how they represent war. And huh. what he's trying to say in these stories is war is not like that. War, just like human beings, just like real life, is much messier than that, much more awful than that. And mm -hmm. until we grapple with that reality, we're going to keep running into some of the same problems. And, and again, he, I think he's very clearly trying to get people to consider the cost much more when yeah. thinking about war, saying, guys, yeah. when you're sending people away... When politicians vote to to send people to war, here's what's actually happening. You see these nice diagrams of this armored division moving in and doing this, but this is actually what it's like for an individual who's there. And mm -hmm. war is forcing that upon a lot of people, and all these lives are going to be ended or changed ir irrevocably because of these horrible things that are being done in war. Mm-hmm. And his case, I think, is very much that, and he, he talks about it, that uh, that a war story, this is early on uh, in, I think, the second chapter, uh, maybe a little bit later. Uh, I'm sorry, no, it's How to Tell a True War Story. So this is, uh, this is what, uh, the third, fourth chapter. So uh, he says, um, a true war story is never moral. It does not instruct, nor encourage virtue, nor suggest models of proper human behavior, nor restrain men from doing the things men have always done. If a story seems moral, do not believe it. If at the end of a war story you feel uplifted, or if you feel that some, bit, some small bit of rectitude has been salvaged from the larger waste, then you have been made the victim of a very old and terrible lie. There is no rectitude whatever, whatsoever. You can tell a true war story by its absolute and uncompromising allegiance to obscenity and evil. That's his, that's his case, which, by the way, interestingly, it is sort of self-refuting because that is the instruction, that is the moral, and, and he's willing to have that self-refuting aspect there to make the larger point that war is nonsense, war is, is, is obscene and evil, 
And basically until you recognize that and until you're telling your war stories come out with that, what's going to happen is you're going to tell war stories and young men are going to want to go to war. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and if anybody wants to go to war, well, maybe it hasn't been recognized. Maybe it hasn't been uh, adequately um, represented. And then, on, then on the other side of his mouth, he talks about how well you know there is some beauty in war. <laughs> Paradoxically, yeah, yeah. it's 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 well, that horrible yeah, thing, and that, and right? That's the, that's the neat thing is he's talking about war, the overall war, and the 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 horror of war and war is hell. But then he brings it down to the individual level on multiple occasions. And in one time that he did this, uh, was he he traced acts of courage in war back to early childhood and and with the quote, the human life is all one thing, like a blade tracing loops on ice, a little kid, a 23 year old infant infantry sergeant, a middle-aged writer knowing guilt and sorrow. So a little kid, uh, and and he talks about a a childhood uh, incident he had, I'll I'll get into that in just a minute. So a little kid and then a 23 year old, 23 year old in war. And then now a middle-aged writer knowing guilt and sorrow. Uh, so he talks about this story as a, as a kid. And again, is it true or is it fiction or nonfiction? Um, but as a kid, there's a girl in school, Linda, and she has, um, she has a disease and, and kids are, are making fun of her and he doesn't stick up for Linda in school. Linda's a friend of his. He doesn't stick up for her and that haunts him. And he says, because of not sticking up for Linda, he, he did not pull Kiowa up in the war. Kiowa was another soldier got trapped in the, in the dirt, in the mud. And, um, and the soldier had, had the opportunity to, to pull him out and just kind of froze. And he, he linked to that back to not standing up for Linda in school. I, I thought that was a, a main connection. And then just how he, he brought that all back and how it, it is this concept of, of daily habits. It's, it's, if, if you don't stand up for somebody when you're 10, um, it's that daily act of courage. Uh, it's going to be harder to do that act of courage during war. Uh, this is something that builds over a lifetime. It's not just that, uh, like that quote I read at the beginning, it's not just the hope you hope that courage builds up in this bottle, uh, by not doing anything. And then you hope it all of a sudden comes out when you need it. He says, it's not the case. And, and he, it, it leads to a, a huge regret in the war. Well, and that connects back to another book that we've already done, uh, natural born heroes which has that as a big theme. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, of course, is dealing with a, a few events from World War II in the more narrative part of that book. But one of the things that that that, that book is really exploring is that question of, like, what makes a person, like, wh- when would, how, how, how do these people who we wind up calling heroes, like, are they born heroes? Or are they truly natural born heroes? Or are they, are they shaped? Is, you know, is a person who becomes a hero, a hero because they've been training themselves and putting themselves in, in position to actually act and respond the in, in a particular way when the need arises. And that's more where he comes mm-hmm. with that is, is learning is, is when you're a 10 year old or when you're a 15 year old or when you're a 23 year old or whatever, you, you, you're constantly, even if heroism isn't required at that moment, you're constantly preparing for that moment as mm-hmm. though it were going to be needed at some time in the future. And then you are ready 
to to actually to do that. And so his connection there does kind of connect nicely to another book that we've read. It also connects to uh, some you know some of what Jocko Willing talks about in terms of you know constantly being being combat ready in that regard. Uh, and, and, you know, his motivations and why he gets up so early in the morning and why he does whatever you're always, you always want to be ready for that challenge. But at the same point, again, he comes back to and undoes some of that too, to say, yeah, but then what does it matter? Because everybody's, because all of this is such a mess anyway. Right. So it, it's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting meditation from beginning to end in that regard. Well, and I, it's funny you bring up natural born heroes, because I was thinking about that book this week and, and it wasn't from uh, thinking about the things they carry, but it was, it was uh, from another book. And um, yeah, I, I was thinking about the title title again. I was like, why, why did he call it natural born heroes? Because they, they, these people really weren't natural born heroes. Uh, it, w- it was more the daily habits that they were doing. It was the, the daily things they were doing. They weren't, they weren't like these, Oh, they, they were born in Crete. Oh, okay. They're going to be heroes. Uh, no, it was daily decisions that they were making. It was, it was how they lived. It was how they, they bounded around the rocks or, or whatever, but um, it culture. wasn't this natural. Yeah. 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 It's culture. I mean, and, and, and again, this book gets us to having to think about culture, mm-hmm. think about our culture and think about the messiness of culture, daily habits, as you have in the notes, right? Daily habits and, and something that, that the daily habits of a 10 year old and the decisions of a 10 year old, wind up connecting in some way to the same decisions that, you know, to other seemingly unrelated decisions that 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 same person is going to have to make at 23. Mm -hmm. And then the, that's going to influence how that person thinks that, you know, as a middle-aged writer, knowing guilt and sorrow. So it's really interesting. Yeah. One other part I I just found fascinating was the the first chapter. Oh yeah. And uh, we're going to, we're going to include a podcast in the show, the show notes, uh, it was a Jocko Willink podcast and he, he actually discussed this book and he, he reads a whole, whole chunk of this, uh, this first chapter, but the book, the book title is the things they carried. And the first, uh, section, the first short story of this book is the, the things they carried. And he talks about what all the people in a certain division carried in the war. And it was just a really fascinating what, way to look at a war situation, uh, the things you carry, and, in, and especially in that kind of a situation where you're you're walking 10 miles a day, 20 miles a day, in, in horrible conditions, um, you're not going to carry a lot. I remember going on a camping trip, and uh, one of the guys had a backpack just full of stuff, and it, we were only about a mile in, and he opened up that backpack and just started throwing, you know, three fourths of his his um, <laughs> backpack away like in the woods because um, it was just too heavy. So when you, when you're, when Never you're, mind, leave no trace, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you are only going to take the things that are most important to you. And, and to, to think about what these soldiers are, are carrying with them, um, it was a really neat way to, uh, to think about the war. But it wasn't just physical things they carried. He also talked about the terrible things they carried, the mental things they carried, the things they had seen. Um, at one quote, they carried all they could bear and then some including a silent awe for the terrible power of the, of the things they carried. Um, it, he also talked about c- carrying things too closely. Uh, one, one of the, the, actually the, the leader of the, of the group carried a photo of a woman who 
didn't really care for him. And it, but it was just kind of a way for him to escape the war in a way. And, uh, and, and, you know, maybe when he got home from the war, this, this woman would be waiting. And, uh, and it ended up being, a, a something that, that was bad for, for this, this guy. Um, and so this idea too, of carrying the most important things to you too closely can also be a burden. And, uh, one podcast I listen to is, is a podcast where Marcus Luttrell is one of the, um, the podcasters and he's, he's the guy for lone survivor. He's the, he's the lone survivor. Um, if you, if you've seen that movie, he's the, the Navy seal and he, in his, in that podcast, he talks a lot about when he's in a war zone, he, he forgets about family completely. Like he, he can't, he can't carry that too closely in wartime because it'll just destroy him. He's got, he's got to just almost forget it as much as he can and, and, his family becomes the guys next to him. And, and that has to be his, his family. So just so many different ideas to consider when thinking about what you carry, you know, physically, non-physically, uh, the things that are really important that you want to carry your family, your wife, your, your spouse, uh, uh, whatever, but that that could also be something that hurts you in, in a, in a war situation. Really just, uh, impressive chapter and and you know even even if you don't read the rest of this book like just reading that first chapter it was it was something else and really neat way to to uh to write a a book about war yeah yeah uh i i not much to say not much to add to that i mean again that was a uh it was a really again i i was not quite prepared for what i was getting into when i read this book in terms of uh the the style of it and what to expect but it was not um it's not what I expected. And, and that chapter, I mean, it sort of hits you right in the face right away with like, wait, why is he just talking about what they carried? And then all of a sudden you start to see the relevance of it. And it connects back to a lot of the stories later on. It's, it's uh, again, it's very cleverly done, very well done uh, throughout. Um, given that, um, I think we are at a point where we could probably, uh, probably begin to uh, wrap up and get to the big picture here uh, at, the end, uh, at the end piece. So let's get to some conclusions here. All right. Well, uh, I mean, I, I look at these books and, and I know I should probably be, be uh, looking at you know, how well was it written and is it is it a good piece of literature? Is it a good book in that sense? But for me, the, my first initial reaction is always just do it. Did I like the book? And, and I loved this one. This, this is this is at uh, at the top of of, uh, of my list so far uh, towards the top. By the and way, as, was, a, was, as someone who does deal with literary criticism and so on professionally in this yeah. regard your instinct is completely wrong screw how well it's written <laughs> and all the literature all this stuff the the benefit like the the true test of a book the true test of any literary piece is the effect it has on the on the reader is the effect it has on mm-hmm. the person to whom the communication is being done you can have all the rest of it and yeah you can say oh, well mechanically this book was not written as well as up you know jk rowling in some various places in the harry potter books there are a few places where you know well grammatically you could probably do this slightly differently and it would be a little bit more more corrector <laughs> and you know what she's a billionaire because of her ability to write and communicate with people and write stories that have wonderful effect on the reader. There's your test. <laughs> yeah. We get too highbrow about well, this. Th- that th- needs to be the first yeah. test. Well, I, th- I think you nailed it with that, 
the the quotes you chose there for the story versus happening truth. Um, yeah, I, and, and the, the other thought I had when reading this book is that he shows the absurdity of war without saying, hey, war is absurd. You know, he, he doesn't have to like spit it out, but it, it's that idea between uh, comparing the story truth and happening truth. That you, you could write a book and put all over it, war is absurd, war is hell, war is horrible, but he does it, he does it in such a unique way uh, that th- this, this is a really, I think it's a really important book to read. I was talking to somebody and they said they read this in high school and they got to class one day and the teacher had drawn the shades and, uh, and had each, after they read the book, they had each, each student take out a piece of paper and, and I think do an exercise where they wrote home to, to somebody as the, as if they were in the war and, um, just putting them in that, in that mindset. But this, this person I was talking to, they were, they were well out of high school at this point, And they said that book had stuck with them over the years because it was just such a unique a unique book to them yeah as for me i mean i i uh i couldn't couldn't agree more in terms of the uh, unique way of covering a war and making points in ways that are disarming uh i think that's one of the things that that this kind of writing does and for those out there who want to do influential writing i think o'brien is a worthwhile writer to study because of his ability to get ideas across that you know, large portions of the population would probably be uh, opposed to viscerally if he just made certain statements uh, without the story attached. You know, if he'd just come in and said, you know, war is absurd, we shouldn't go to war, there's a lot of people that would just say, here we go, another, you know, another one of those. But then when he establishes himself as a soldier and forces you to walk a mile in his boots and then the second mile and then dig a hole and then fill the hole back up and then walk the two miles back, having done nothing, you realize yourself like, wait, war is kind of absurd. Like, why did he do any of this? And mm. he makes the point without getting up the resistance of the reader. And, and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a gift. That's a skill that takes a lot of a lot of development and a lot of uh, a very careful uh, careful writing to to get that across. Uh, I'll leave a couple other things here, um, a couple other quotes I wanted to to finish with here. One is again, this is how he displays that absurdity and the the absurd mixture of heroism and and goodness and then the absolute evil involved in war. And he says, uh, and, and he does that here in this particular quote, war is hell, but that's not the half of it because war is also mystery and terror and adventure and courage and discovery and holiness and pity and despair and longing and love. War is nasty. War is fun. War is thrilling. War is drudgery. War makes you a man. War makes you dead. And all of those, wow. <laughs> all of those different statements in you know the, the tension that's created by all of those true statements about war is his way of getting you getting you at the truth about war, and to see the story truth, and he's doing that throughout, is trying to trying to paint that picture so that you can see all of those aspects of war and the multifacetedness of it. And again, the multifacetedness of what it is to be human. 
So, and one other thing, one other quote also, I, I should have had in my favorite quote section, but I, I, I saved this one to the end, that I think, again, this really gets at something important in this book. He says, if you don't care for obscenity, you don't care for the truth. If you don't care for the truth, watch how you vote. Send guys to war, they come home talking dirty. <laughs> Ooh, Right? So, I mean, this this is a shot across the bow of lots of, you know, white bread Americans who would, uh, you know, be averse to people using obscene language, whatever that means, actually, uh, in front of their children or talking about certain subjects or, you know, thinking about certain subjects and these same people might vote readily to send people to war for whatever reason. And he's basically saying, listen, war is obscene. There's obscenity that you're exposed to with the, with the killing of other people, which is what war is. And all that goes with it that you can't avoid. And you send men to war, you send guys to war, they come home talking dirty. And, and then beyond that, he, you can ex extend that further. Human life, our culture, there's a lot of obscenity in it. There's a lot of things that aren't very good. And to ignore that and to treat it as though we shouldn't talk about it because it's obscene is actually to do damage because we should be talking about those things and trying to trying to uh, to address it and and treating it as true. And 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 again, I love the way he gets that across in that quote. Again, talking about these guys coming home in, in in these specific ways after being scarred by what they saw. And he's saying, "Listen, stop pretending that we can that we can clean everything up by ignoring it." And and that that that's a, a another worthwhile thing. I, I think you had one more one more thing before we finally wrap up. Yeah, uh, I, was, I I would I'm going to add this book to my list of most influential war books. And the other two are also fiction books. I mean, I've read other nonfiction uh, war books, but the three that have had the most impact on how I view war are fiction, and they are Catch Twenty Two. All Quiet on the Western Front, and then I would add this as the third book on really shaping my view of war. And, you know, we were talking about the absurdity of war. Catch-22 does a, a, a great job of that, just on the bureaucratic side of what happens on the to the absurdity of war. All Quiet on the Western Front, on of the absurdity of, of life as a soldier, uh, and a, a German soldier in World War One in that case, and then, um, and then this book about Vietnam War, three excellent books uh, about about war and really making you dig deeper. And in, in as we talk about, not the glorious side of war, but really what happens to people, what happens to institutions, and what happens to um, to individual soldiers. What ha what happens in war? These three books do a great job of, of uh, hitting on that. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll I guess wrap with one more quote here uh from the book that seems like a, a reasonable place to uh to finish and that is in the end really there's nothing much to say about a true war story except maybe oh
Oh, well, all right. That's going to do it for today. Before we get out of here, just a reminder that you can follow along with us at booksoftitans.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at Books of Titans. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to this podcast and, and find our past episodes in iTunes, the Android Place, or your podcast manager of choice. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends, give us a five-star rating, review us on iTunes, and share your favorite episodes on social media. We'll be back to, to discuss the next book, which will be Iacocca, an autobiography. On behalf of Jason Staples, I'm Eric Rostad, and this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Thanks for listening. I made this.